Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Last Adam. Doesn't it seem unfair that because Adam sinned in Eden, that the rest of us are born in the sin as a consequence? Yet, even though the first Adam failed, wait until you see how gloriously the last Adam, Jesus, rescued our lost and fallen race by opening a door for us to get out of Adam and in to Christ. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. So this is called The Last Adam. Adam is not necessarily the most memorable character. Well, he's memorable, but not necessarily in the most positive sense. And so we oftentimes don't teach on Adam. We refer to Adam, but we don't say, now, you see what Adam did? Let's follow in his footsteps. Adam didn't do a lot right. He named the animals, and you know we can be thankful for that. But then after that, he sort of went downhill and fast. And so the fact that that is actually a name of Jesus, the title of this message is a name of Jesus. He's the last Adam. One very simple way of putting it is, he's the last man. But that doesn't make a lot of sense. He's, he's not the last man. Well, he's the last Adam. And that actually, the distinction is very, very important. You see, Adam represented something, and what he represented is of extreme significance, and I could say it was priesthood, and yet he failed in his priesthood, he disobeyed in his priesthood, and everything went south, and it actually affected you. Adam's decisions affected you. Get this, he represented you, and you're like, well, I don't want that kind of representation. I didn't vote him in. He represented you. We need another Adam, and another Adam has come, and Jesus is the last Adam. In Romans 5.14, it says, it's talking about Adam, and it says, Adam, who is the figure of him that was to come. Adam was a foreshadow. He was a type. He was a figure, is the term used in Romans 5, of one who is to come. Well, who is that one who is to come? His name is Jesus. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. I know it's a strange term to give to Jesus Christ. The last Adam? What a strange statement. Well, that's why we have this message. (laughs) If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood. We see, we have a problem in this world. Something is out of order. Something has gone awry. Something has become perverted and twisted. There was a way that God intended man to be, and Adam was entrusted the priesthood over that. And yet something went south. And so, in this whole course of history, God had to clarify to the people of this earth that something was wrong. Have you noticed that you sometimes don't even realize something's wrong in your life? Something's wrong, and you don't see it. Well, it's the same way everyone else is. They don't see it either. And so God had to bring the law to bear upon this earth. And the law exposed the fact that we are wrong because the law is right. That's perfection. It's the way God behaves. And it says, and you have to behave the way God behaves. I can't do that. And God goes, bingo. You see, you have something called sin. You are behaving opposite of the way I behave. We're like, what? I don't like that. I don't like the law. It exposes our error. It exposes the fact that something's wrong. Well, there were priests that were put in charge of administering the law and the sacrifices, and all the various things to do with the temple. And so it says, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, 
In other words, okay, God has given us a law, and he says, if by this law I could have brought perfection, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest who should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not called after the order of Aaron? And that's going to be a little confusing up front. You could say, well, thanks for sticking it in up front. Well, this message, there's a reason why we oftentimes avoid it. Because it can be a little complicated, talking about priesthood. And most of us are like, ah, it doesn't matter to me. I am fine without knowing it. Well, maybe you would be fine without knowing it. However, just think about how much your life could be changed if you did know it. This is one powerful truth. And so we have this thing. I mean, I just threw out some big words there. Priesthood. How about this one? Levitical priesthood. Oh, that's a huge word. And then Melchizedek. Most of you don't even know what priest is, let alone Melchizedek and Aaron. It's like, who are these people? Well, I don't want us to stress about those things. My goal is not to try and impress you with a whole bunch of knowledge today. I want to be as succinct as possible. However, to be succinct, I need to try and say this clearly. We are wrong. Something is out of order with us. God's law comes in and it says, look, do you see that you're out of order? You must keep this law to be right with me. No one can enter into my presence unless they are perfect. And so the Levitical priesthood was assigned the job of administering that standard of perfection. And guess what? They had to constantly offer sacrifice as an atonement for our sin. Why? Because we are not as we are supposed to be. Something is wrong with us, and that law did not purify us, did not perfect us. We are still in a quandary. We are still wrong. We are still against the law, even though we have the law. All it's done is expose the fact that we have need. There is a need for another priest, another order. You see, God intends to perfect us, but the law cannot do it. And as a result, There is a begging throughout all of history. You can just feel it in all God's creation. Is there another priest who will come? Is there another one? There was. And, of course, that's called the good news. The strange means of rescue. Listen to this. This is Paul, the apostle, talking. And he says, And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law is under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. It's an interesting statement because what Paul is articulating is the manner in which Jesus Christ himself came to rescue us. It's a strange way of doing things. Now, if you're going to think sort of like Eric Ludi has always thought, I'm just going to take a global view at this whole thing called a messed up humanity and God. Why doesn't God just sort of blow upon everything and remove all the problems? It's like, why in the world does he actually don our skin, come down to this earth as born as a baby? How would he do that? It seems like there'd be a lot easier way of doing something. However, God, if you go through all the complexities of it, it's extraordinary why God did what he did. It is bewildering. It is so magnificent. And yet our little minds don't quite con- comprehend it. So instead of me being able to go into that, I have a message called Law and Grace, which would be a great tutor- tutelage in that exact point. This is basically saying, just as Paul said, I became as a Jew... I, and to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. What did Jesus do? He became as an Adam to gain all those that were in Adam, all those that were the descendants of Adam. How did he do it? He became as an Adam. In the 77th generation, I was studying genealogies this week in my spare time. 
And it's really fascinating, the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, it's, I, I need to do a message just called genealogy. Of course, some of you will go, tell me when that's going to be, and I will not show up that week. <laughs> oh, it's so intriguing. I know that they don't sound intriguing when you read them, but when you understand the messiahship of Jesus, that he had to be. He had to be of the tribe of Judah. He had to be born of Isaac. He had to be from Abraham. But get this, he had to be the seed of the woman. And so he had to be the seed of the woman, and yet he also had to be born of a virgin. That means he cannot have any paternal, and for those of you that don't understand what this means, it's fine, any paternal influence in his heritage. Yet he had to be of the line of David and born of the seed of a woman. You know, the complexities of this are actually astounding to think that Jesus is of the hereditary and titular, which means title, of the king of David and of the bloodline in and through Mary. Legally, by the law, he accepted the bloodline of David in and through his mother. It is amazing. There's actually a little complexity in the law back in the wilderness where this one tribe came to Moses and made an appeal that if the man had died, could the line be carried through a woman? And it was passed in the law of Moses that Jesus, all those years later, would receive the bloodline inheritance of David. I mean, okay, I'm just, I could go into this. I'm not. I'm restraining myself. <laughs> Abraham was the 21st generation from Adam. 14 generations from that is David. 14 generations from that is Babylonian captivity. And 14 generations from that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the 14th generation from the Babylonian captivity and the 77th generation from Adam. Isn't that interesting? Just 70. If you know numbers in the Bible, it's extremely intriguing because 70 is a number of completion and so is 7. And so he's the 77th generation in the fullness of time. In the 77th generation, God himself arrives in the body of an Adam. But why must he come? Well, I'm not going to go into great detail of answering that. I'm just going to make it clear, if he doesn't come, we're sunk. There is nothing that can perfect us. There's nothing that can make us right. We can only cover over our problem with the shedding of blood, but we can't solve our problem. And that's if you're a Jew. If you're outside the Jewish nation, you're outside the commonwealth of Israel, you have no hope in this world. You know, before Jesus Christ, you had the ability to believe in a Messiah. And that belief actually saved you at a certain degree, but didn't bring you near under the throne of grace. It puts you in what the Jews would understand as Abraham's bosom. It puts you in Abraham, in the people of faith. But those people still needed to be set free. They were still captive. We need another priest. Adam, the priest of Eden, the first man that failed. Now, I'm going to extrapolate it here and use my imagination just a little. Okay, now, I don't want you to build doctrine over what I'm about to say. What I want you to do is just take it as an idea. Eve is tempted by the serpent. So the bride of the priest, the bride is tempted. Okay, now, we are called in the New Testament the bride of Christ. So you have the first bridegroom, Adam. His bride is tempted. She eats of the fruit. What does God say? He said, the day in which you eat of this fruit, you'll die. It's just a fact. It's called the law of sin and death. You disobey, you die. You eat, you die. There's a tree in the garden. 
If you eat of that tree, you die. All these thousands of years later, 4,000 years later from that point, there's another tree. And God says, unless you eat of it, you cannot live. But the fruit hanging from that tree was a man, and his name was Jesus Christ. You see, that set everything correct, but it was faith by which you live. Here, it was disobedience, and you die. And so we have Adam as the priest of Eden. I know that's not a typical way of looking at him, but he was the one that had the headship in this garden to protect it and to administer the law of God. God gave a law, and his bride, for whatever reason, heeded the temptation of the serpent. What should Adam have done? We know what he did. He ate it as well, right along with her. She seemed to stretch it out and say, oh, this stuff's good. And he goes, really? And he ate it. What are you doing, buddy? I can't believe you just ate that. Didn't you know that the day in which you eat that, you will die? What should Adam have done? Here's just my imagination on the matter. Imagine that Adam sees his wife with the juice of the fruit of that tree dripping down her chin, even holding it out for him. And he backs away. He says, Eve, Eve, how could you? No, Adam, it's good. God isn't telling us everything. We can eat this and become as he is. God says, in the day you eat of it, you will die. Eve. And he backs away and, and he turns unto God and he says, God, because he has access unto grace. He has access unto the throne room. He's perfect. God, my wife, as I know, she ate of the fruit, the forbidden fruit. I know. And Adam, you know what that means. I know she must die. I know. Is there, is there any other means? I, I know you're just, and I know your law is your law, and you must abide by your nature. But is there any other way? Well, you can die for her. Imagine if the first priest of Eden stood and represented his wife and said, take me instead. How does the course of history change? But the first Adam failed. And what's interesting is the New Testament makes it very clear that you are in Adam. And when he failed, in a sense, you failed. But the New Covenant is all about something quite different, and that's being in Christ. And when he was victorious... And when he lived the perfectly righteous life, if you are in him, you gain access to it. Through one man's disobedience, it says in Romans 5, if you read through Romans 5, it is profound on this exact point. Through one man's disobedience, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. You weren't even there and yet death passed upon you. Through one man's disobedience, many be dead. Through one man's disobedience, sin is reigned unto death, and death has reigned. Through one man's disobedience, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. One man! And look at the consequence. You have to recognize this is the context of the first man, Adam, who was made of this earth, he was made of dust. But the second man, the second Adam, the last Adam, is a Lord of heaven. By man came death, 
in Adam all die. Now you see some dot, dot, dots in there. I'm going to give you the full scripture as we progress because there is a counter to that in Christ. But let's be succinct of what happened. By man came death. So death did not come from God. It came from man and man's disobedience. And in Adam all die. So wait till you see the contrast to that. To inherit, I'm going to teach you a, a word from the 1828 dictionary. To inherit means to take by descent from an ancestor, to take by secession, as the representative of the former possessor, to receive as a right or title descendable by law from an ancestor at his decease. And so when a man dies, his children, or that which succeeds him, inherits that which he leaves. And it's strange, but the concept is in heir it. In other words, the concept is an heir of an estate, an heir of something. And what makes an heir? Well, typically it's from that which is in someone. So, for instance, I have biological children. Hudson was in me. And then he was born. And as a child, he is given a body. And so a seed becomes a body. But that child is of me. And so technically, by the nature of how things are described in the Bible, Hudson was in me. And though he's different than me, he inherits so much from me. And that's the same with us. You know that every single one of us was in Adam that way? Every single one of us. We all came from Adam. And so technically, though we did not yet have a body, and we were still many, many, many years from being born, we were in Adam, just as Hudson was in me. So we inherited something by descent from an ancestor, to take by secession as the representative of the former possessor, to receive as a right or title descendable by law from an ancestor at his decease. The heir inherits the lands or real estate of his father. The eldest son of the nobleman inherits his father's title, and the eldest son of a king inherits the crown. Another definition of inherit is to receive by nature from a progenitor. The son inherits the virtues of his father. The daughter inherits the temper of her mother. And children often inherit the constitutional infirmities of their parents. Some of us are like, I don't like that. We are all from Adam. And so therefore, the term is in Scripture, we are in Adam. Which seems strange because Adam is even no, no more on this earth, and yet we are in Adam. And another way of saying it is we were in Adam. We descend from Adam. We are clothed in his corruption. His decision, actually, we inherited the death of it. The sin, that, that infrastructural breakdown, the deterioration of soul, we inherited. We inherit a body just as Adam's body became. Something is wrong with it. There was a twisting in the mechanism, and guess who inherited it? We did. We are all in Adam at our birth, which is why Christ talks about a second birth. We must be born again. The principle of seed. By man came death, in Adam all die. It's a strange thing, but if I took an acorn, I know it doesn't seem reasonable, but a million years from now, out of this acorn, there could be a million oak trees that have sprung forth. 
Because this one acorn, if I plant it in the ground, could grow a tree. And you could say, well, there's only one tree in that. Yeah, but how many acorns came out of that tree? Well, I don't know. There was about 1,500 of them. Yeah, and they all could be 1,500 trees. And then guess what? They grow up unto trees. Trees, the same size. I mean, it's extraordinary. And to say that all those trees were in that one acorn just doesn't seem right, does it? You can't fit them all in there. And yet they were a seed. They did not yet have a body. And that's the same way we are. We were a seed in Adam. And we did not have a body. Adam, as the papa, had the seed of every last human being in him while in the garden. That's just the way it is, okay? I'm just telling you, this is how the principle of a seed works. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Which, by the way, is a very, very fascinating passage of Scripture in light of even the high priesthood of God. So, each seed, by the way, Jesus is called the seed of the woman. Okay, there's this descendancy all the way from Adam through Seth, all the way down through Noah, and then to Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Judah, and then all the way through to David, and then Solomon, his son. And then we see it all the way unto a man in the 77th generation, that seed line of that woman is Jesus Christ. Even though we were not yet born and had our earthly bodies, we were, in a sense, there in the garden disobeying God in Adam. We were there in Adam entering a covenant with death. In Adam, we all died. Doesn't that seem funny? It's like, hey, I'm innocent. You have a representative. In a sense, you have a high priest whose name is Adam. And he didn't do you a very good job. He didn't represent you well. However, his representation is your representation. And so you find yourself inheriting a corruption that you didn't even begin. And yet you continue it and pass it on to those that follow you. All have sinned. We are all still guilty. Every single one of us is culpable. Though we have inherited an incomplete package, a twisted package, we are still responsible for how we've handled it. In Adam, we all inherited the first tabernacle, the first body, the body of sin, the body of this death. You see, there's a term that Paul uses for this body that we inherit. A seed comes down to us from Adam, and then it's given a body in us. And we are now that tree that is growing up. But in Adam, we all inherited the first tabernacle. You know what the tabernacle is in the Bible? It's the concept of a house. It's the house of God. Well, we are that first tabernacle. The first tabernacle that was carried around in the wilderness and became a temple in the land of Israel. We are that first temple. And in that first temple, there's a division where you cannot access the Holy of Holies. The presence of God, the perfect presence is cut off to us. We are that tabernacle cut off from the presence. We are the first body, the body of sin, the body of this death. By one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. The body of death, the first tabernacle, this is where we are at. You see, we have inherited something. I want to be more specific in what we've inherited. There's our body. Don't you like my drawing? It's very nice. Uh, What you'll see, the head, it says self or the head. You know in in the body of Christ that there's a complete difference to this? This is called the body of death or the body of sin. Now, most of us don't think that we can get out of this body. We inherited it. We're stuck with it. There's nothing we can do. But we don't understand how a new birth works. 
We don't understand how inheritance works. We don't understand these things. The high priesthood of Jesus is of the utmost importance in understanding how this body is actually dealt with by the Spirit of God. Sal for the head is at the head. The flesh is alive. Your instinct to preserve self, to preserve your cravings, your comforts, your desires. The soul, that's you. Your mind, will, and emotions, it's enslaved. And the spirit, there's supposed to be a dimension of your being that houses the living God. However, that little dimension, known as the Holy of Holies, is without the presence of God. It's dead. It's like an organ that doesn't work, like ears that don't hear or eyes that don't see, a tongue that doesn't taste, a heart that doesn't feel. You see, something has died in us, and it's the spiritual dimension. However, we don't recognize that our spiritual dimension is dead. Why? Because we've never had it alive. If you've never had hearing, you don't know that there's such a thing as hearing, unless someone communicates that to you. If you never had something, you wouldn't know that it's missing. We are missing something in our life in our body, and we don't know that it's not there because it's dead, and it's been dead. It's been dead for generation to generation to generation all the way back. It died in Adam. And so here we are. We've inherited this. If you can't figure out why your life doesn't work, for instance, say you decide that you're going to start being pure. You're tired of looking at pornography. You're tired of having an anger issue. You're tired of these addictions. And you just decide one day that you're going to kick all that and you're going to change this life. You can't do that in this body. That's not how it works. It doesn't mean that superficially you can't have a little season of success. You can't, you know, work your way up to say, you know what? I think I've got this whipped. I've got it licked. We call it the, the wheel here at Ellerslie, where, you know, here you are on the wheel at the bottom, you go under the wheel, and then you start to go up on the wheel, and you're like, I think I got this. Yeah, I got it. I got it figured out. Yeah, if you need me to teach you? All right, I'm here to teach, and we go back under. We don't realize there's a cyclical pattern of defeat that we have, and it's right here. We could mean well, but we can't stay well. We can't live well. And so... What you see, the reason for this is because self in the Garden of Eden, Eve, Adam, the appeal of the serpent was, come on, God doesn't want you to know something. You can't trust him. You see, if you eat of this fruit, you can be a God as he is. You can take that throne in your life. You can rule this body. You can be over it. And they believed it. They believed the lie. They believed the devil instead of the word of God. You see... God has set things straight, and what he says is, you believe the word of God, and you live. However, you disbelieve, or you believe the lie, and you die. So self claimed the head position. However, you are actually not in control of your body. The flesh is. Your cravings, your sensual desires, your longings, your wants, that's what's controlling this body. And you are enslaved to it. And that which could help you is dead. In Genesis 3, we see the result when he says, in the day you eat of this, you shall surely die. That, what I just showed you, was death. It was spiritual death. However, most of us are saying, they didn't die. They're still living. Look, I'm still living. I've sinned too. We're spiritually dead. And the wages of this spiritual deadness is mortal death as well. We die. It's just a slow process. So he drove out the man. This is the result. So God drove out Adam, and he placed at the east of the garden of the Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way. What was it there for? To keep the way of the tree of life. 
You see, there is a life, and it's on a tree, if, if you will. It's a very interesting statement. This tree and this life are associated together. And there's a way to that tree, but it is now blocked because something is wrong in Adam. And until that something is corrected, God cannot allow them to eat of that tree of life, lest they stay in that condition forever. So as an act of mercy, God blocks the way to the tree of life. Jesus is known as the way. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle. Okay, there's, the concept is there's two different buildings inside the temple. You have the inner chamber, and then you have the second chamber. Now, when the thing, these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first chamber, the first house, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, and not without blood, which means he had to have blood as an offering, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So there's this first tabernacle. Remember I said the body of death is the first tabernacle? And as long as it is still standing, the access into the second tabernacle is not yet made available. There is a barrier. There is a partition between known as a veil that hangs. So the first tabernacle is going to have to be destroyed. It's going to have to die. You guys see the, the preparation for a high priest? For I know that in me, this is Paul speaking in Romans 7. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Remember that picture I gave you of self at the head, flesh ruling the body, soul being subservient to flesh, and the spirit dead? Listen to Paul. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me. In other words, I want to do what's good. I desire to do what's good. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. He's digging into his spirit and there's nothing there. There's no water in the well. He wants to obey with this body, but he can't. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? A lot of Christians stop there and say, see, Paul was stuck. (laughs) No, he wasn't. He's speaking to the Jews about the condition of their soul under the law of sin and death. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The high priest has come. The second Adam, the last Adam has come. So the body of Christ. We talked about the body of sin or the body of this death. Now let's look at the body of Christ. You see, when I say body of Christ, you can think two things. You can think of the body, actual body that Jesus walked this earth in, and you would be right. And you could think, well, isn't the body of Christ like the church of Jesus? Don't they call them the body of Christ? Well, and you'd be right. Uh, you see, the body of Christ is both and. You know that we actually become his body, which means that these are his hands and these are his feet? He utilizes us. His very spirit enters into us, and we become his body. And the way his body was then is the way his body is now. So the body of Christ, we could call it the second tabernacle. The one born of promise, the second man, the last Adam, the priest of heaven. Who's the head of this body? Christ is the head of his church, the body. Yet look at this. Remember, the spirit was dead in the previous illustration. The previous body, the firstborn body, the body of Adam, there's death that reigns. 
However, life reigns in the body of Christ. And the Spirit of God is alive. Key word, alive. Life. You see, death reigns in Adam. Life reigns in the high priest from heaven. The soul is set free. Oh, that's quite the change. Your mind, will, and emotions is free as opposed to being enslaved to the flesh? What a dream. It's reality. And the flesh is now dead. It no longer has power in your body to dictate in this body how you are going to live. It's called Christianity. It's called the body of Christ. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. So you are alive to something, but you're dead now to the law, the law of sin and death, the law that condemned you. Now you're actually dead to that instead of being alive to the law and dead to God. That you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. You see, for the first, for, to become the second tabernacle, there must be a death. And that's the principle of Scripture, is that if you're in covenant, if I'm in covenant with Leslie, I can't just go off and marry another girl. That would be adultery. However, if there is death, if there's a severing of covenant through death, it frees one of us to actually go and marry someone else legally before the law. In other words, still righteous before God. Now, by the way, I'm not interested in that happening either way in my case, but that's how it works. And we were in covenant with death. We had entered into by agreement with death. And as a result, the only way to deal with that is for death to take place. This first tabernacle has to die so that a new tabernacle can be established in a new covenant. 1 Corinthians 15. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. And afterwards that which is spiritual, and the first man is of the earth, earthy. Now I'm going to explain this in just a second. This is somewhat of a confusing thing, but basically it's saying there's a first and a second. All throughout the Bible, there's a first and a second. You have a first Adam, and you have a last Adam. You have a first covenant, you have a second covenant. It's called the old covenant and the new covenant. All throughout scripture we have this. We have the flesh, and we have the spirit. First, second. The first is always of this earth. It's born of the dust of this earth. The second comes down from heaven. Okay, so the first Adam was made of dust. The second Adam was born from heaven. Okay, this is very important, even though it might not be that easy to discern. In and through the, if I read it to you again, you'd probably understand it. So how be it, that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural. In other words, the natural was first, the spiritual was second. And afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. As was Adam, such are they also that are born of dust. We all behave as Adam did. That's just what we inherited. That's how we behave. As is the earthy, so are those that bear the earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, brace yourself for this one. If you need to stick a seatbelt on, it's fine. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly. We are not meant to continue to bear the image of the earthy. We are meant to bear the image of the second, of the last Adam. The first and the second, Cain and Abel. 
Cain, by the way, for those of you that haven't read through your Bible in a while, Cain is the bad guy. He's the flesh. He actually kills Abel. Abel's the one that makes the sacrifice that is pleasing unto God. First, second. Ishmael, Isaac. Ishmael is the product of impatience and flesh. Man's solution. And the second is Isaac. He's the one that's supernaturally born to Sarah when she's 90 years old. Esau and Jacob, twins in the womb of Rebekah. The first one that is born is Esau. He's hairy all over. He's the ultimate picture of the flesh. Not that if any of you are hairy all over, you're a picture of the flesh. And Jacob is the second born. He's called the plain man dwelling in tents. He doesn't look the part. He doesn't have any natural strength in this earth and eyes. He's weak. Hangs out with his mother. I always picture him knitting all day long. It's like, come on, buddy, be a man. And yet the first is the one that God says he hates. The second is the one God loves. The second is symbolic of that which carries the seed, that which carries the inheritance, truly, of Abraham. The promises are in the second. Manasseh and Ephraim, firstborn, secondborn of of Joseph. And when Jacob, his father, is blessing, he puts his right hand on the secondborn. And Joseph says, no, 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 Dad, stick your right hand on my firstborn. He says, no, I know exactly what I'm doing. And he gave the blessing to the secondborn. Saul and David, who was the first king of Israel? Saul. Talk about bungling things up and taking it into your own hands and doing it your way. Yeah, that's the flesh. And the second one is known as the better man. It's the eighth son of Jesse. No one would have ever guessed that this little shepherd boy could do what he did, and yet that is precisely what the Spirit does. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Old covenant and new covenant. The first covenant proves the weakness of the flesh. It proves our need for a savior. The second covenant invites us into the intimate chambers and the glories of a savior. Completely different. Flesh, spirit. First, second. Adam, Jesus. First one, sinned. And we all died. The second one lived righteous. And we all live. The elder shall serve the younger. The first shall submit to the second. You know this is a prophecy in the Old Testament? Esau and Jacob are in the womb of Rebekah. And God says this. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb. And two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people. Listen to this. And the elder, which is Esau, shall serve the younger, which is Jacob. The second born will rule. And by the way, this is the line of the seed. Jesus is born of this line. He was born of Jacob, who gains the name Israel. That's actually who Jacob is. His name is, uh, is re-given to him as Israel. The hereditary quagmire. What if we are not of the blood lineage of Abraham? You see, Abraham was given promises. He was given an inheritance. And you can see it even in Jacob. He's like, oh boy, I want what the firstborn gets. The firstborn in this culture always got the entirety of the inheritance. And Abraham literally was given a blessing from God Almighty that his descendants would be as the sands of the seashore, as the stars in the heavens. Almost every single one of us in here has no blood linkage. 
to the inheritance of Abraham. We don't. We're cut off. We're called Gentiles, otherwise known as dogs. We have no access to the promises, to the covenants, to the heritage of Israel. So the hereditary quagmire, what if we are not of the blood lineage of Abraham? You see, we have Adam. And Adam, in Adam we all die. However, if you are in Abraham, he's a man of faith who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so the Hebrews understood that if you believed the promise that Abraham believed, you would then find yourself secure in Abraham's bosom. And instead of being in Adam's bosom, you would be in Abraham's. Because you were of faith, of the descendancy of faith, and the descendancy of Abraham. But how about us? We're in Adam, but we have no access to Abraham. Woe is us! We're cut off with no hope! It's called bad news. Now listen to this. In Romans 9, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? Whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. Let me break that down a little better. What do the Israelites have in their possession? If you are born of Abraham, you have the adoption. You are literally adopted as one of that lineage. You have the glory. The picture of God has never been so clear as to an Israelite. They actually have seen the power of God. They have the Ark of Covenant. They have a temple which literally replicates that which is in heaven. They've seen the clear picture of glory than anyone on earth. The covenants. They have an actual covenant with God that if they keep their end of the covenant, they are saved. You know that if you keep the law, you will be saved? You will have access unto the throne room of grace if you perfectly keep the law. Yeah, how are they doing? They have it, though. The giving of the law. They were given that law. Perfect righteousness of God was revealed to them. The service of God. They were given the job of representing God on this earth. Talk about a privilege. The promises. All the promises in the Old Testament, which are extraordinary promises. They, the, the ones in covenant with Jehovah God, the Israelites are the ones that have them. If you're not of Abraham, guess what? You don't have access to that. The fathers, you know what they could actually say? Yeah, my father is Abraham. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I come from Isaac and from Jacob and from David. You could say it. If it was true, you could say it. You could brag about that. Those are some pretty hefty characters in history. However, bloodline-wise, what can you say? It's a little confusing for us. You know, we're from great Aunt Martha and, you know, in one line, and I'm not exactly sure this way. It's a little skewed over here. I don't know. I lose it about that point. We don't know where we come from. All we know is we don't come from that. We don't have access to this. We have no bragging rights on this earth. All that God has done to covenant with the people of Israel, we don't have any access to it. All we can do is stand back in awe and say, why did he choose them instead of me? I've been left out. Key question. Okay. So as far as I can tell, I'm in Adam. And so I inherited all that wonderful stuff from him, sin, death, and all. But what if I'm not in the bloodline of Abraham? Can I access the blessings of Abraham and promises of God if I'm outside the hereditary line? What do you think the answer to that is? You see, the answer in the natural would be no. However, something has transpired over the past 2,000 years that has changed the answer to this question. We actually can access 
the blessings and the promises of Abraham, but that's because another Adam has come. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. This is an interesting statement. Just because you're of the bloodline of Abraham doesn't mean you're Israel, is what it says in Romans 9. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham. You could be the seed of Abraham. I'm the seed of Abraham. What do you mean I'm not of Abraham? I was in his loins. I'm of Abraham. And yet it says, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Isaac is his son, but it is the second born of his sons. In other words, you could be born of Abraham, and yet you might be Ishmael, not Isaac. What's the difference? Well, one's the body of death. The other one is the body of Christ. Which one are you? You see, just because you're born of Abraham doesn't mean you have all that Abraham has. You know that Ishmael did not receive what Isaac did in the line? He didn't. He was cut off. So it says, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. If you are still ruled by the flesh, you are not the child of God. However, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah will have a son. You know that God gave a promise? He says, at this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. You know that if you believe that promise, if you believe the word of God on the matter, did you know that you have life and you have access into Abraham? It's, it's Isaac is what you have. You have the lineage of Isaac. You will be counted because you believed. We are counted into the lineage of those that have promise, those that have covenant, because of faith. So what if I, a Gentile, believe the promise? See, by the way, I cut out so much for you guys. Okay, remember I said I could have just spent an hour just reading? This is such good stuff. But you'll see, I mean, I cobbled this together for you. And by the way, everything is contextually accurate. I'd love for you to check me on anything in here. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know you therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham? Did you just hear that? Did you know that if you believe the word, if you believe the promise that God has given, if you believe the word of God, and by the way, Jesus is the word of God made flesh, if you believe the promise, if you believe in the Messiah, that's exactly what he was believing in back then. His seed will be as the sand of the seashore, as the stars in the heaven, and Abraham believed it, and it was credited to him as righteousness, the same way it is true for us. Even though we are cut off after the natural, we do not have any bloodline bragging rights. By faith, we are of the children of Abraham. It says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the heathen through faith. By the way, we're the heathen. <laughs> preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. 
But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So when Abraham was believing, when you believe, it's, it's in a sense that you were in Abraham. And how Abraham is justified by that faith and made just by that faith, it's credited to him as righteousness, similar to us. But this promise was made not just to Abraham, but to his seed, which is Christ. And so when we are believing, we are not just in Abraham, but we're in one even greater than Abraham. We are in Jesus Christ, and he becomes our representative. And as he believed, and as he lived his righteous life, we are found in him. Abraham's two sons, Ishmael, the child of the flesh, or the first, and Isaac, the child of promise, the second. They're both Abraham's sons, both of blood lineage. However, one is the one in which the seed will come. One is the one in which the promise is established. And it's Isaac, the child of promise, the second. Do you believe that God will come and Sarah will have a child? You see, the Israelites didn't have Jesus in the flesh. They had the promise of the Messiah. And when they believed in that promise, when they believed the word, when they believed the record, they had life. They had righteousness. And, but they still did not have the fullness of what Jesus Christ came to give. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The two men, Adam, which we could call endless death, and Jesus, endless life. The two priesthoods. The first priesthood, Levi, who's unable to save those under the law. Levi could heed the law even with perfection. However, the law was unable to save. And so Levi, though he meant well, by the way, the word Levite comes from Levi, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And Levites were the ones that were called to be the priests in Israel. And the Levites could mean well. They could do their best. They could do even their job with perfection. But their job, even done with perfection, could not perfect. It could not save the first tabernacle. It could not cleanse it truly. We are a wreck. Something is wrong with us. And there is a need for a greater priest. Melchizedek. You see, Levi is unable to save those under the law. But Melchizedek saves to the uttermost those under grace. In other words, he's able to save. He will do it. The astounding work of our high priest. He took on our body, our first tabernacle, and brought it down to death that he might establish a second tabernacle. He became a law-satisfying sacrifice for sin, becoming a curse for us, tasting death for us all. Number three, he made a way into the holiest chamber through the breaking of his own body in death. He removed the barrier that stood between us and the throne room of grace. Number four, he became an everlasting priest for us, always living to represent our cause and able to save us to the uttermost, administering abundant eternal life to those he represents. Adam administered abundant eternal death to all those he represented. You see a, a, a sort of a contrast here. Number five, he represents us before the Father as our righteousness. 
We are deemed just in Christ Jesus. His work of satisfying justice is our work. His death, our death. His life, our life. And his admittance into the perfect heavenly courts of trifold holiness is our admittance. Our high priest. So I'm going to go through each one of these very quick, as quick as I can. But this is the work of a priest. Our high priest, he's the perfect temple. He took on our body, our first tabernacle, and brought it down to death that he might establish a second tabernacle. The second tabernacle is the unblocked tabernacle. It's the, it's the house. It's the body of Christ. It's the new birth. It's the twice born. We must be born again unto a new body, if you will, a new way in which we live here on earth. Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he wasn't talking about that temple. He said, they're looking at a, a temple built by human hands, and he's saying, you don't see it, do you? The temple of which God was speaking, Jesus was speaking, was his body. You see, he is the temple of God. He is that temple. That temple in the Old Testament is merely an external symbol of that which is to come. It's the true priest who will come. And that first tabernacle which had its divisions and it closed off the access unto the holiest quarter. Jesus comes limited in this earthly tabernacle, tears it down and rebuilds it in three days. And now there is a new tabernacle, unblocked, a veil rent in two. Hebrews 9. For there was a tabernacle made. It's called the first. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So then, fast forward to chapter 10. Look at what it says. He, Jesus, taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Our high priest, he's the perfect sacrifice. He's not just the perfect temple, he's the perfect sacrifice. He became a law-satisfying sacrifice for sin, becoming a curse for us, tasting death for us all. Because we are under, we're born in Adam. And what are the consequences? What are the penalty? What's the wage of sin? Death. And so as a result, in order to satisfy that law that we are guilty under, he, in a sense, bore that punishment. He became a law-satisfying sacrifice for sin. And by the way, a sacrifice for sin has to be unblemished, without spot. It can have no defect. It has to be innocent of any crime. It has to be perfect with the law. That's why you take a little lamb. Talk about the most guileless creature. That lamb didn't do anything wrong. And as a result, the lamb had to be put in our stead. However, Jesus is more than just a little furball. He is the high priest of heaven. And when that high priest of heaven stood in that position and became a sin-satisfying sacrifice, it was accomplished for all time. He tore down the first, resurrected the second, established a new way, a new order, so that we didn't have to go back to a sacrifice over and over. We didn't have to continually look for a little lamb to lay on the altar. We were cleansed wholly and completely. 
And our lamb that was slain actually lives and enables us by the power of his shed blood to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. Hebrews 9 says, By his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. That by means of death, Jesus was a sacrifice. He actually died. How is he bearing his blood? He shed it. He actually died so that we could have this redemption, that we, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. This is just how it works in the law. For there to be a new inheritance established. You know that we receive the inheritance of God in Christ Jesus? For us to receive that inheritance, there must be a death of a testator. You cannot have an inheritance if the the one, hasn't, the one before you that you are going to succeed and receive from has not died. And so there must be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Our high priest. So he's not just the perfect temple. He's not just the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect way. He made a way into the holiest chamber through the breaking of his own body and death. He removed the barrier that stood between us and the throne room of grace. I love this scripture. Matthew 27. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. He's on the cross. He's dying. He's doing that very work. He's tearing down the first temple so that he can rebuild the second one. And he's crying. He yields up the spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. So what's happening in the earthly temple? The replica of the body. What's happening? But that barrier between the first tabernacle and the second is rent in two. It's divided. Talk about scary for any priest that might be in there at the time doing his work because that's the dread, holy presence of God that we have no access into. You have to be perfect to stand in that presence. You have to be without spot to stand in that presence. And the veil has been torn. So what does it say? And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake, and those that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. It's obvious to them. Is it obvious to us? You see, Jesus has done it. He's our high priest. Standing in our place, he broke the barrier. There's two ways of looking at this. That holy chamber is where the Spirit of God dwells. The very presence of Almighty God, which we have been cut off from. Do you remember the body of death, the body of sin? The Spirit is dead. There is no life within us. We are dead. We're endlessly dead. However, something has happened which has broken the barrier that has made available to us the very life of God. There's two ways of looking at it. First, you can access that holy place, and I'll explain how. But also, that life is now on the move. 
It is able to go into this world and begin to be shed abroad into all of our hearts. It's been loosed to be able to be efficacious for the work of God in this world. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. What is that new and living way? Which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, his body. When his body is broken, his body destroyed, there is an establishment of a new way, a new avenue. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our high priest, he's an everlasting high priest of a heavenly order. He became an everlasting priest for us, always living to represent our cause and able to save us to the uttermost, administering abundant eternal life to those he represents. Now, see if I can do this. This is one of the hardest things to teach on in the Bible, and I don't know why it's thrown into this message, but it's sort of hard to avoid it. Melchizedek. And everyone's sort of like, goes, who in the world's that? Melchizedek. You know what his name means? King of righteousness. And he was the Melchizedek, the king of Salem. You know what that means? The king of peace. He's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And no one has a clue where he comes from. No one has a clue who he is. However, even Abraham acknowledged that he was better than him. Who is this guy? Well, there's a lot of different opinions on the, the matter. He could have just been an earthly character with some, uh, some priesthood. He was a priest of the Most High God. Not exactly sure why. He's a priest of the Most High God, just sort of roaming around. And Abraham actually is subservient even to him. Who is this guy? Well, of course, there's also a lot of speculation that he's the Lord from heaven. And how all that works and why he's there in bodily form way back in the book of Genesis, I couldn't explain. However, it's all we have is what it says in the Bible. So in Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. Does that sound like Jesus? And he was the priest of the most high God. And then we have in Psalm 110, it says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, all priests come from the order of Levi. Under the law of God, all priests come from the order of Levi. What's this? In the very Bible itself, it makes it clear that the Messiah, this is in the context of talking about the Messiah in Psalm 110, That Jesus, or the Messiah to come, will be a priest after the order, not of Aaron, but of Melchizedek. And that he will be both a king of the line of the tribe of Judah, and he will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So after the order of bloodline, he will be of David. But Jesus wasn't born from the seed of a man. He was born of the seed of God and the seed of a woman. Jesus is not like us in that regard. He's otherly, and he is of the order of Melchizedek, which is obviously a heavenly seed, by the way. Hebrews 6, look at all that. The forerunner is for us entered. Who is that forerunner? Jesus. He went before us, and he has entered to make things right for us, to then invite us in. The forerunner is for us entered. Even Jesus made a high priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, 
First being by interpretation, king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. This is what it says of Melchizedek. He was without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. Who does that sound like? Sounds an awful lot like Jesus. So I'm not going to try and tell you exactly who Melchizedek is. However, he's a picture of Jesus one way or the other. Either he is Jesus, the priest of the Most High God in the Old Testament, or he's one like the priest who has, by the way, it says, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Is that true of the actual man Melchizedek, or is that just nothing's mentioned about him, so he doesn't have any of these qualities? But he really did, we just don't know it. I don't know, I can't answer that. But I can say this is a picture of something divine. And if Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, I'm having to assume it's something divine. Okay? Look at the type of high priest. The first priest was of this earth. The second one is from heaven. So if he's of the line of the descent of Melchizedek, I'm having to lean in the direction of him being divine. Now consider how great this man was, speaking of Melchizedek, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And here men, Levitical priests that die, receive tithes. But there he, Melchizedek, received them. And of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. You know what the argument is being used in Hebrews right here? Is that Levi himself, the priesthood, actually paid tithes in Abraham. Levi was in Abraham, is what it's saying. So when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, the, the Levitical priesthood is actually saying, this is a higher priesthood. We pay tithes to Melchizedek. Isn't that interesting? For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So in Abraham, Levi paid tribute unto Melchizedek. The law, and the keepers of the law actually said, this is a higher order of priesthood. Isn't that an amazing statement? After the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. This man, because he continues ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Have you ever had it where we have a great, I don't want to call him a politician, but that's what they would be, someone who represents us in government, and it's great while they're there. And then either they get voted out, they die, or you know their term limitations uh, come about, and we lose our representative. And it's like, oh! And so as a result, American history is sort of like the Levitical priesthood. You get some good representation, but then something, you just can't continue because men die. Imagine if we could go back and have early Americans, all those founding fathers, still around. And if they ever lived, they could save this country to the uttermost, would be the concept. That's, that would be the link here. In other words, because they're not dying. The Levitical priests come and go. And as a result, we're constantly unstable. Our representation is constantly shifting. Corruption enters in. But the one who represents us without blame, without flaw in him, the one who is perfectly righteous, holy, blameless, and pure, always lives. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus was made a high priest 
How long? Forever. That's a long time, by the way. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. These are descriptions of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, of whom it is witness that he liveth. There arises another priest who is made after the power of an endless life. He continues ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. He ever liveth to make intercession for them. The word of the oath makes the son a high priest who is consecrated forevermore. See, his nature is forever. When he does work for you, how long does it last? Forever. That's why it's called eternal life that you receive. You see, when you enter into this priest, when you allow his work to be your work, by faith you access and you become basically in him instead of in Adam. You put off your old life. It says put off the old man with his deeds and put on Jesus Christ and you are in him. You are in eternal life, endless life, unstoppable life, unchanging life. And he will never fail you, never leave you. He will thoroughly work his work in you. He will never cease to work for you. He is your high priest. Our high priest is a fulfillment of perfect righteousness. Unless, do you remember when that veil was rent? Talk about striking terror in a priest. A Levitical priest cannot perfect They're imperfect, which is why they need to offer sacrifices even on their behalf. But they have no access into that holy chamber. And when that veil is rent, I mean, talk about stark terror to a priest. However, the only access into that holy of holy chambers is perfect righteousness. And yet, Jesus Christ, when we come to him as our high priest, he administers when we are in him, He did the work of perfect righteousness. And so if we are in him, just like if we're in Adam, he did the work of perfect disobedience. And we receive the consequence of that, and we are cut off. But if we are in Christ, who has done the work of perfect righteousness, we are able to draw near. We are able to actually come into the throne room of grace, the holy of holies. We have access to the very presence of God in our high priest. Our high priest, the fulfillment of perfect righteousness. He represents us before the Father as our righteousness. We are deemed just in Christ Jesus. His work of satisfying justice is our work. His death, our death. His life, our life. And his admittance into the perfect heavenly courts of trifold holiness is our admittance. You remember this from the beginning. It says, by man came death. In Adam all die. So here's the other half of that that I cut out. And now I'll put it all together after this. By man came also the resurrection of the dead. Another way of saying it is by man came life. In Christ shall all be made alive. If you're in Adam, you die. If you're in Christ, you live. If you eat of this tree, if you disobey the word of God, you die. And you enter under a law called the law of sin and death. However, if you repent and you turn unto the tree known as Calvary, And you believe the word of God. You believe that he is sufficient for you. You believe that he is your high priest. Through your faith in him and his work, you are now clothed in him and you live. For he is an endless life. This is an endless death. Get out of this. By faith, repent, turn unto your high priest and say, you have done it for me. 
And he will clothe you in his righteousness. And he will then bring you near unto the very throne room of grace. The very person of the holy, holy, holy one. You have been reconciled in his work. You are now considered just before the law of judgment. In him. Not because of the work you did. Because of the work he did as a high priest. He represented you on that cross. When he was buried, he represented you. When he rose again, he represented you. When he entered into the courts of holy, holy, holiness, perfect righteousness, he represented you. And when you are in him, when he died, you died. Just as when Adam sinned, you sinned. When Jesus died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. But when he rose again, you rose again unto a new life, a new body, a new way of living, a new man. And when he ascended to be with the Father, and he entered into the true tabernacle, the one in heaven, that this is merely a replica down here, and he came in with his own blood, he represented us, and we were in him. And when he took his seat at the right hand, at the exalted position where all things are under his feet, you know that we are in him? We are in Christ Jesus by faith, and we have been brought near unto the very intimate place Next to the Father. And actually, if, we, if I was going to teach on this, in the Father. Because Jesus is in the Father. It's not just next to, it's in. We've been brought to the closest, most intimate and dear place in our high priest. So here's the full scripture in 1 Corinthians 15. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. By one man's righteousness. Remember we talked about by one man's disobedience? By one man's righteousness, the gift of grace is abounded to many. By one man's righteousness, the free gift redeems us from our many offenses unto justification. By one man's righteousness, the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. By one man's righteousness, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. By one man's righteousness, many shall be made righteous. By one man's righteousness, grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. What do those in Adam and in Abraham have access to? See, what I would say is one who believes in the Messiah that Abraham esteemed and, and carried on through his generation to say there's one that's coming. The seed of that woman will crush the head of the servant. And in faith, they were both in Adam but also in Abraham. What did they have? They had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, the fathers, the race of the incarnation. The amazing gospel. We are in Adam and outside the commonwealth of Israel. However, the amazing gospel takes us from being in Adam and in his death and outside the commonwealth of Israel to in Christ and having access to better, a better covenant and better promises. You have it better than any Israelite has ever had it in Christ. We have such a high priest but now hath he, Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much also is he the mediator of a better covenant? By the way, the new covenant's better than the old. Which has, was established upon better promises. This is the one we come into. It includes us, the Gentiles. We have access unto all the benefits of Israel. Plus, we have so much more. Listen to this. The first part is what the Jews had, what the Israelites have. But look at what we have. They had the adoption. 
We have the adoption of sons. We are literally adopted and become sons and daughters of the Most High God, where we literally have a spirit in us that cries out, Abba, Father. God is our Father. We are adopted, which means we receive His inheritance legally in the person of Christ. The inheritance of God Almighty? The glory. You know what? They had... All sorts of shows and signs of the power of God throughout their history. And they were able to write them down and chronicle them in the Old Covenant. However, we have the hope of glory in and through a life lived. Do you know that we become the very territory through which God does exploits? And in and through our very lives, individual lives, and as a church, we are able to show forth the indwelling power of God Almighty in this earth? We have the hope of glory. The covenants. Well, we have a new covenant in His blood. The giving of the law. Well, we have the giving of the Spirit. The very thing that enables us to keep the law. As opposed to that which just condemns us and shows us how we are off and not true and correct. We now have the Spirit. The service of God. We have the great commission to go into all the earth. With the promises. We have exceeding great and precious promises that are better promises. The fathers. They could brag about being the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have access by one spirit unto the Father. Yeah, uh, well, your father may be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My father is Jehovah. (laughs) We have bragging rights. Talk about something to boast and get excited about. The race of the incarnation. They could say, you know, the Messiah comes through our bloodline. And you can't argue it. The Jews have something there. The Messiah comes through their bloodline. Well, the incarnation of Christ within. Well, yeah, the Messiah did come through your bloodline, but the Messiah lives inside of me. I tell you what, this is better. We have such a high priest. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Isn't that a great way to, to say it? That's actually what it says at the start of Hebrews 7, after, I mean, at the start of Hebrews 8, after the entire argument in Hebrews 7, which is what we've been going through this whole time. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest. Oh, we have such a high priest. Don't you hear the enthusiasm in this statement? We have such a high priest. Don't you see it, saints of God? Don't you understand this, that we've been brought near by that blood? Our high priest is not one that lives temporarily, dies, and we gave a good show at it. He's one that has accomplished it all, finished it all, done it, sat down at the right hand of the Father. It is done. Who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Entering in by faith. All right. Many of you, even in this room right now, are still lingering in Adam. Just sort of hanging out there. You know, maybe you don't want to be there. Remember that first body, the body of death? I wouldn't blame you for not wanting to be there. However, how do you get from being in Adam to being in Christ? Well, it's not that complicated. You see, the Bible makes it very clear. It's not a grammatical mess up where Paul keeps saying, no, you need to be in Christ. You need to be in Christ. All the promises of God are yours. They're yes and amen in Christ. It's a position If you're in Adam, you die. That means you're still in the flesh. And God has no pleasure in the flesh. He only has pleasure in the spirit. And so when you're in Christ, you are in the spirit. And you can actually please God with your life. It's very strange. But how do you get from in Adam to in Christ? 
Well, another way Paul says is just to put off the old man and put on Christ. But that still doesn't make any sense to us. Well, how do we do that? I use this illustration at Ellerslie a lot. If there was a pile of clothes down here, and I could say, yeah, I love those clothes. You could say, why don't you put them on, Eric? Say, you don't need to put on clothes. You just have them. And some of you go, no, there's a big difference, Eric, between putting on clothes and being near clothes. (laughs) And so imagine that I listen to your counts. Like, all right, all right, all right. So I stand on top of the clothes. I'm like, does that satisfy you now? You go, no, no, no. Actually, Eric, the only thing that will satisfy us, as long as you're standing in front of us, is that you get inside of the clothes. You see, it's a position. Clothes can offer their merit and their virtue when you are in them. A strong tower. If you're on the outside of a strong tower, 10-foot thick stone walls. If you're outside hugging it and an arrow is shot at your backside, guess what? It hits you. (laughs) However, if you are inside that tower, that same arrow goes dink and bounces off the wall. We must be in Christ to gain the virtue of his work on the cross. If we are in Adam, we will produce the fruit of Adam, which is sin and death. But if we are in the person of Jesus, we will produce the fruit of Jesus, which is righteousness and peace. We will demonstrate the very love of God in and through our life. Because we are in him, then he comes into us. And our life begins to function as it ought to function. But how do we get into Jesus? Must we keep the law? Must we do this, 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 and this perfectly? We must believe. We must believe that he is the one that saves us. We must believe that his work is efficacious. He has done it. And I need to be rescued from being in Adam. And he did that rescuing work. And I believe that his work is sufficient for me. And in doing that, guess what? His work is sufficient. We access it by faith. Faith in his ability, not in ours. Faith in his work, not ours. Faith in his death, not ours. Faith in his life, not ours. Faith in his righteousness, not ours. Faith in his ability to save, not our ability to save ourselves. He does it for me. And when we do that, when we believe in Jesus, we are clothed. It is counted to us as righteousness. And we actually, in reality, have the benefits of what that high priest came to work in Christ Jesus. So entering in by faith. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man, the Adam. Adam's your classic old man. It's like, you know, the young punks are like, yeah, my old man won't let me go out on Friday night. (laughs) Well, we can say, yeah, my old man has sentenced me to death. Put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. We are supposed to be in Christ, not in Adam. We're new creations in Christ. Everything you'll study in the Bible is found in Christ Jesus. Everything that destroys our existence is found in the old man, in that old behavior, in that old lifestyle. I don't want that. Get that away from me. I want Jesus. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our salvation. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Okay, this is the conclusion. Listen to this. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace. 
that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What are we asked to enter boldly into? Well, into the throne room of grace. But what is the throne room of grace? It's Jesus. It's the true tabernacle. It's the one that was raised from the dead that is sealed in blood. The high priest would splatter blood all over the tabernacle. It was covered in blood. It's a seal of blood, life. The life of God is the one that seals this tabernacle. And Jesus says, in me, you can come boldly. You see, but how do we access it? It says, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace. By faith, we enter in and say, are you serious? By faith in knowing he is our high priest and he has invited us in, we are to boldly enter the throne of grace. Wow! Boldly enter into Jesus Christ. Boldly enter into that holy, holy, holy one. Boldly. You're like, me? I haven't lived a pure life. Boldly. He did. He lived a pure life. But I have not kept the law. He did. But I deserve death. He canceled death. He destroyed it and crushed its power. It no longer has hold over you. Now you have life and it has hold over you. And life will never let you go. Believe. Come in. Be clothed. Be made right. Be made whole in him. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have a time of need. It's called humanity. Life on earth. And yet you have access unto a throne room of grace where there is unlimited amounts of help and you have one who will save you to the uttermost and whoever lives to make intercession for you. We have everything we need in Jesus Christ to live the impossible life of a Christian down here on this earth. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.